Yeah, I love that story from Sebastian. Um, I love his French accent. I just love everything about it. If you know Sebastian, he's awesome. He's an amazing guy. Um, love him dearly. And Sebastian is a part of uh, something called Discover the Bible. It's actually uh, something we do here at our church. Some of you may know of it. May, many of you probably don't. Uh, it's a cohort of people who say, yeah, you know, I want to take up the challenge and just see if I could read the entire Bible in a year, which is very daunting. Um, but we've had dozens of people go through that. So we've had dozens of people in our church in the last couple of years read the entire Bible beginning to end in a year. And Sebastian's just one of those people. So I'll talk more about that here in a moment. But like Mark said, I want to spend a little bit of time today just before we get into uh, um, some of our compassion immersion stuff that'll start next Sunday where we celebrate God's work all over our city and our world. Uh, I just want to take one day to talk about the Bible and the Word of God. And to do that, let me begin with um, just an experience, a story of my life. Uh, several years ago, a friend of mine texted me urgently one day, and he said, hey, next Saturday, I am taking a speed reading class. It's $200 for one day, and their guarantee is that once you take this class for one day, you'll be able to read at minimum 100 pages an hour. So I thought to myself, wow, that seems pretty amazing. A hundred pages an hour minimum. That seems kind of worth 200 bucks a day. So I thought about it for a while, and then uh, I did a little bit of inter internet research, and I quickly realized speed reading is not really a thing. Um, and some of you, maybe you paid lots of money to take a speed reading class. I'm so sorry, it's not a thing. Uh, Mark Seidenberg, who is a psychologist and an author, he's done a lot of research on speed reading. He says this, there is a trivial sense in which these texts are being read rapidly, but there is very little being comprehended. We should call this quote unquote reading or sort of reading rather than speed reading. The allure of speed reading makes sense in a culture like ours that emphasizes efficiency and speed, right? And as a result, you and I, culturally, maybe not you specifically, but most people you know, we are losing, as a, as a culture and society, we are losing our ability to read long-format texts. This is not conjecture. Pew Research did a survey uh, about a year ago, and 77% of American adults, almost 80% of American adults admit that in the last year, they have not read a single book in its entirety. Some of you feel really judged right now. You're like, oh my gosh, don't judge me. There's no guilt here. This is not really about, are you a reader? Read lots of books. That's not what we're talking about. Mostly, I point this out because this reality that we are quickly as a society losing our aptitude for patiently and deeply diving into long format texts this, this poses an immense challenge for Christians specifically. Why? Because for followers of Jesus, the story of our faith is most clearly and compellingly told through the Bible, which is a library, as Sebastian said, of 66 long-format books. Now, listen, for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to talk about the Bible and the importance of reading the Bible, but I want to make it really clear here. This is not about coercive guilt. So if that is like, because some of us have, um, I, I sort of had this, this tradition. I grew up and I had a beautiful church 
upbringing, but um, I grew up in sort of like an old school Baptist uh, um, immigrant church. And one of the things I learned there, uh, I, I felt immense guilt throughout periods of my childhood. Like, if you're a good Christian, you have to do X, Y, and Z. One of those things was like, read the Bible. Now, in some ways, I agree with that. But what I disagree with, it's not about performatively becoming a good Christian, right? As we're going to see, there is a beautiful invitation from God to hear him speaking through the scriptures. But maybe that's your experience. I just want you to know, this is not, I'm not trying to guilt you into action. There should be freedom in our engagement of listening to God speaking through his word. This isn't about coercive guilt. This is primarily about God's invitation to you to listen to his voice. That he has spoken and is speaking and he wants to talk to you. And he does that most compellingly through the scriptures. It's just an invitation. Um, the late great historian Larry Hurtado uh, in his book Destroyer of the Gods, which is the greatest book title of all time, he says this, the Christianity is, he's a historian, right? He says, Christianity is a bookish faith. Both the importance and the impact of corporate reading of scripture writings are evident from the outset of the Jesus movement. As a historian, Hurtado recognized, as did, as do many biblical historians, that the Christian faith was built upon the corporate reading of Scripture. Not just that, but that was a key tenet in the early days of the Christian movement, and still obviously today. So what does the Bible itself say about itself? Just a few examples. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed. Romans 15, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Matthew 24, heaven and earth, these are Jesus' words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Ancient text, Isaiah 55, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. These are just a few examples of what the Bible says about itself. What about early church fathers and the first few centuries of the Christian movement? What did they say about the scriptures, about the Bible? By the will of God, they delivered to us in the scriptures to be, for the future, the foundation and pillar of our faith. That's Arrhenius. Athanasius said, the holy scriptures given by inspiration of God are of themselves sufficient toward the discovery of truth. Or Cyril of Jerusalem. The security and preservation of our faith are not supported by ingenuity of speech, but by the proofs of the divine scriptures. Now, I want to make another point here. I know that in a room this size, and for those watching in the theater or online, there are probably some of us who don't necessarily believe what many Christians believe, that the Bible is the divinely inspired word of God, that it is active and alive and God-breathed, as we read in the Timothy text. Some of us are here, and honestly, we would say, like, listen, I'm not a Christian. 
I'm not religious. I'm actually quite skeptical or cynical. Or maybe like I'm curious, I'm seeking, I'm searching. First, I say this often here. First, if that is you, we are so grateful and glad you're here. It's not an easy thing for someone to walk into a room like this with a bunch of people who believe one thing and then participate when you don't believe what they believe. So thank you for coming. We are thrilled you're here. Whatever you need in terms of your faith journey, let us know. We would love to come alongside you. But even if you do not believe that the Bible is the divine word of God, let's just take a look at it from an in, like a non-religious, non-Christian uh, perspective. First, let me show you a graphic. This is just a very quick graphic about sort of like the reliability of Scripture. This does not mean like the reliability you believe it's the divinely inspired Word of God, just the reliability of the text itself, that the the texts that we have are actually accurate and true, at least in their own original literary form. You can see the list here. These incredibly famous uh, works of literature like the Iliad or the works of Plato or Aristotle. And you could see how many copies of these texts we have today. Around 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad, 200 or so copies of Plato's works, 40 copies of Aristotle. And then you get down to just the New Testament, 5,800 copies, 5,800. I share this with you because this should not convince you that this is the divinely inspired word of God. I am only letting you know the Bible is a significant literary text. It is an important historical text. Let me show you the next graphic. This is a visual graphic showing you from beginning to end, on the far left would be Genesis 1-1, on the far right would be the final words of the book of Revelation, the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, and every line that you see, this kaleidoscopic rainbow that you see, do you know what this represents? It represents every, now remember, these texts from beginning to end, they were written across the span of thousands of years. And the lines represent every time that these authors cite or prophetically speak to one another. This is the interconnectedness of the library of books we call the Bible. There is not a single text in literary history that would look like this in terms of its interconnectedness. Not a single one. This is not a religious point I'm making. This is simply a historical literary point I'm making. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, you do not believe that the Bible is the divine word of God. That is perfectly okay. I understand. We want to come alongside you in your journey. My invitation to you is this. Even if the Bible is not the word of God, it is, I would suggest to you, the single most important work of literature in human history, and it is not even close. So if that is true, I would suggest it deserves your attention, way more than Twitter or your newsfeed. So even if you are not a Christian, I would suggest to you, take a step and explore. So for Christians, though, which many of us in the room are, This is vital. The Bible is vital. It is for us. We believe the divinely inspired word of God spoken for us to lead us in the way of truth and love down the path toward God's glory and our good. 
But this isn't just about intellectual assent. It's not just about knowing more. It's about transformation. For Christians, we engage the scriptures. We read and deep dive into the Bible uh, on our own, but also within the context of community because we believe it has the power. God has the power through his words to change and transform us. The theologian Scott McKnight puts it this way. He says, God did not give the Bible so we could master him or it. God gave the Bible so we could live it, so we could be mastered by it. The moment we think we've mastered it, the Bible, we have failed to be readers of the Bible. So how do we invite God to transform us and master us through the scriptures? About 600 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a man named Ezekiel. And God calls this man, Ezekiel, to be his prophet, essentially to speak on behalf of God to his people. And this is how God invites Ezekiel to speak on his behalf. Ezekiel chapter 2. This is Ezekiel writing. He has this vision of heaven. He says, then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, not to speak, but to eat. He gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So, Ezekiel says, I ate it. And it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. This is interesting because if you go back a few verses, it actually says that on both sides of the scroll were written words of what? Anyone remember? Lament, mourning, and woe. And yet Ezekiel eats the scroll and it's sweet as honey. Then he, God, said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. God doesn't give Ezekiel the scroll to carry, unroll, and read to the people. God gives Ezekiel, his prophet, his words to eat and then to go and speak. I do wonder sometimes pastorally, how we are a talking generation. Everybody has something to say. And you can scream into the digital ether as quickly as your thumbs can type, Right? But I wonder if we are speaking from emptiness. I do wonder if as Christians, maybe the best thing to do is to shut our mouths for a moment and to take in God's word first and then to speak with sweetness, sweetness of honey. That wasn't in my notes. That was just a sidebar. So, the word of God is most powerful and effective and transformative, not when we hold it or have it on a bookshelf, but when it is what? When it is in us. So, how? How does that work? A few thoughts from the scriptures themselves. First, the word of God, the Bible, is bread. The word of God is bread. You know, we've been in a series through Matthew for over a year now. We're taking these little breaks, but we've been in Matthew, trucking along. We're through chapter 7, right? And uh, we read months ago in chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And what happens? Matthew 4, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry, obvious, right? 
And the tempter, the devil, came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is actually quoting here from an ancient text called Deuteronomy, which tells the story of the Israelites being rescued out of slavery in Egypt and led through the wilderness to the promised land. And during that journey, they run out of food. And what does God do? God sends them food. Deuteronomy 8, what does it say? God, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna right, the magical bread from heaven, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The word of God is bread. Now, some of you are wondering right now, okay, Jay, that sounds poetic and nice, but if I'm actually hungry, I can't literally eat that leather-bound book on my shelf. What are you talking about? Some of you know in the world of psychology, some of you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you guys know this chart? Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know this? Uh, Basically, this is um, Abraham Maslow, 20th century um, psychologist. This is not a Christian thing. It's It's just very popular in the world of psychology. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is basically a pyramid that shows you how human beings prioritize their behavior, their motivations, uh, and and their, their actions, right? And it's a pyramid because what Maslow said correctly, I believe, is that at the very base of the pyramid, the thing you need to build further on the pyramid is what he would call physiological needs. So food, water, air. Right? You, you get what I'm saying. Let's say you and a friend are, um, gosh, like lounging around by the pool near the deep end, just with your feet in the water, and you're having long existential talks about life and meaning and purpose, and it's really beautiful. But let's say your friend doesn't know how to swim, and she's not wearing a life jacket, and you're like, oh, so funny, and you tap her on the back, and she falls into the deep end of the pool. And she's drowning. At that point, if you looked at her and said, no, but seriously, tell me, like, what do you think the meaning of life is? What would she do? She doesn't care at that point about the meaning of life or existential conversations, right? What she wants is what? Breathable air. She needs, like, help. She's like, what? Who cares about the meaning of life? I'm about to lose my life. Please pick me up out of this water. Okay, that's the whole point of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need the basic stuff to continue trekking on. Does that make sense? Okay, but... But Maslow's point is really fascinating. He says, once you have the basic needs met, human beings have other needs. Like, you're not satisfied that you know you're going to have lunch after this service. Like, but if you were in sub-Saharan Africa with no food, no water, that's the only thing you'd be thinking about, right? Now, because we have the baseline needs met, there are other needs that pile on top of that, like safety. Do you have shelter? For example, belonging. Are you alone or do you have community you belong to? It's one of the reasons why we talk about community so much here. Or esteem, right? What he calls esteem. Biblically, this would be about identity. Do you understand who you are in Jesus? And then it goes to like self-actualization, purpose, meaning of your life. And then later, near the end of his life, Maslow added to the top of his pyramid pyramid, what he called transcendence. What I believe is Maslow came to a place where he realized there must be a God. 
right? And we are searching for him. Now, I share this with you because you're right. If you're physically hungry, you shouldn't eat that leather-bound book on your shelf. But as a human, you have needs that are deeper and more meaningful than lunch. Now, if you don't have lunch, this is why the next three weeks we're going to go through compassion immersion, which is like a celebration of all God's done um, for the good of the world through you, this community. Like, we want to meet those needs, those baseline needs. Most of us in this room don't have those needs. You know what you're going to have for lunch, or at least you know you're going to have lunch. So what that means is that there are greater, deeper human needs within you, and that's the bread that the Word of God offers. No, you can't physically eat your iPhone and you have like your Bible app or whatever, right? But it will feed you. Not your iPhone, but the Bible will feed you. And it can sustain you. So the word of God is bread. The word of God sustains us on our journey toward identity and transcendence. The deep needs of human longing. The word of God is also a lamp. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Interesting that it is a lamp and not a flashlight. Now, of course, back then they didn't have flashlights, but this is very intentional language. How far along can you see with a lamp? Not very far. We often want God's word to be a flashlight. Like I want to be able to turn that thing on and see 12 years down the line, right? It's like, ah, I see, that's where God's taking me. If God were to do that, it'd be wonderful for us in some ways, but what would it do? It would detract from from our understanding, our, our awareness and acknowledgement of our deep, constant need for him. And so his word is a lamp. It lights just a few steps ahead of us, but it does light the way. Um, as a pastor, I've done several visits to um, congregants and friends who are terminally ill, right? And it's one of the most heartbreaking and holy sort of spaces. There's a sacredness to it when somebody is near the end of their life. I remember several years ago at a previous church where I was on staff, I went to the hospital to visit uh, an older gentleman who was... um, terminally ill and I'm like this young pastor and I was like in my mind prepping like what beautiful thing can I say to this man to usher him into like I'm like crafting I'm wordsmithing in my mind right and I walk in and I start talking and he says to me he goes (laughs) just (laughs) I'm like oh okay I I should shut up now (laughs) And then he says to me, he says, can you read me the Psalms? And so I was like, that is so much better than me talking. So I opened the Psalms and I read him the Psalms. And what I realized was that he didn't need me to talk his way. He didn't need me to speak comfort in his sort of tenuous situation. What he needed was the scriptures to light the path to eternity. And that's what the Bible does, not just toward the end of your life, but every moment of your life. His word is a lamp. God's word is also a sword. 
Ephesians 6, 10 and 11, and then verse 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is why, again, going back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, that was the first time, hey, tell these stones to become bread. But three times in the wilderness, the devil comes to Jesus like, hey, if you're really God, do this. And what does Jesus do every single time? He takes out a sword to battle the enemy, but the sword is the word. Three times Jesus says, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. This is one of the reasons why I actually think memorizing scripture matters so much, why it's so helpful. Charles Spurgeon once said, the Bible in the memory is better than the Bible in the bookcase. Sometimes you don't know right? You don't know. Yesterday, some of you were here. Yesterday morning, we had the Reset Conference here. It was about 250 of you who joined us. And my friend Glenn Packiam, who's a pastor in Southern California, he was up here. And he said so many beautiful, profound things. But he said something that um, just has really stuck with me. And I'm paraphrasing him here. But basically, he said, listen, the miracle of spiritual growth, the miracle of spiritual growth is not um, experiencing spontaneous virtue." What he meant by that is like, you're just living life ho-hum, something happens, and then spontaneously, God like brings up this power in you. So Glenn was saying, that's not how it works. The miracle of spiritual growth is the embodying of sustained faithfulness, were his words. The whole point he was making is like, you don't go to the Bible when you're in crisis. You eat the Bible all the time, and when crisis comes, you are ready. That's what Jesus did. It is written, it is written, it is written. When the devil tempted him, you think Jesus was like, um, hold on, let me grab a scroll. Where's that part? Where's that part? It's like Deuteronomy. Or, I don't know, I don't know. Like, you think Jesus did that? No. The devil tempts him, he's like, no, God's word says, God's word says, God's word says, because it was in him. God's word is a sword. Finally, God's word is a scalpel. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is active, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Let me just say something that I think is critically important, especially in today's sort of Twitterverse world. It's so shocking and sad to me that I see so many people, Christians included, who today want to weaponize the Bible to protect or promote their self-interests and attack anyone and all who disagree. The Bible is a sword, but the enemy you fight with that sword is not one another. It is the enemy of God, the devil himself. But more than that, the Bible is a scalpel. It's not intended for you to leverage and weaponize against one another. God wants to do surgery on you. He's not giving you his word so that you can weaponize it to cut down anybody who disagrees with you. He is giving you his word and it is a scalpel in his hands, not yours, to cut out the cancer in your heart, not theirs. How often do you let the scriptures do surgery on you? 
If this is you, I cannot say this more clearly. If you are weaponizing scripture to cut other Imago Dei humans down, stop. And instead, let God do surgery on you. What is broken in you? What is sinful in you? What is toxic in you? God, in his great love, longs to cut that out of you. We're so busy cutting each other. This is me too. This is self-indictment, you guys. I'm tempted to do this too. So let's stop. God's word is a scalpel to transform us. Going back to the 2 Timothy um, passage, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that, there's a so that, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? For every good work. We don't read the Bible and study the scriptures just so we can know more. We read the Bible and study the scriptures to become and to do more. And I do not mean do more to earn God's love or grace. You can't earn it. To do more in terms of joining God more effectively in the beautiful work he's already up to in our world. N.T. Wright puts it this way, that the Bible is there to enable God's people to be equipped to do God's work in God's world. Eugene Peterson says Christian reading is participatory reading, receiving the words in such a way that they become the interior to our lives. They become interior to our lives. The rhythms and images becoming practices of prayer, acts of obedience, and ways of love. This is the invitation to eat this book, to let it be bread that sustains you, a lamp that lights the way forward for you, a sword by which you can fight against the attacks of the enemy and a scalpel that can do surgery on you. I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come back up. We're going to sing and respond together. But a couple of um, practical takeaways and invitations. First, I would invite you, if you're new to the Bible, I would invite you, try to read the Bible as a whole. Uh, our friends at the Bible Project up in Portland, Oregon, Tim Mackey, he, he, I'm quoting him here. He says, the Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus. These 66 books, it is one story leading to Jesus. So maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've read bits and pieces of the Bible, but you've never really read the whole thing as a story. I would encourage you, don't do it alone. There are sections of the Bible that are really weird and tricky on the surface, and it's great. It's so helpful to read in community. Um, and then I would also encourage you to read the story in detail. You know, some of you are familiar with like Lectio Divina or just I grew up in the quiet time era. And as much as people want to mock that, man, it's a game changer to spend time just with your favorite cup of coffee and a text of scripture in the morning and sit and linger with the Lord and let him speak to you through his word. So a couple of practical invitations. First, um, I said parts of the Bible are really strange. Uh, the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Um, they're hard to understand. So on February 15th, we're offering a Bible lab uh, here at our Saratoga campus. Dave Tish, who's our South Hills teaching pastor and uh, recently graduated from Western Seminary in biblical theology, he's going to deep dive with us through the first five books of the Bible. And I think if you want to start sort of reading the Bible at the beginning, um, 
uh, this might be a great lab to check out before or as you do that. And then finally, you heard Sebastian's story earlier. Again, he's a part of something called Discover the Bible. It's a group of people who try to read the entire Bible in a year in these cohorts and keep one another accountable. There are these monthly Zooms with pastors where we respond to some of the tough topics and all of that. So that's just, those are just a couple of practical invitations. Let me close with this. When I was a youth pastor, um, you know, every May or June was like graduation season where, you know, graduating seniors. And I would be going to high school graduations all the time in June. And I remember one year there was one kid named Mike who was graduating high school And he was so excited because he had an older brother who was like seven or eight years older than him who was living in the Pacific uh, Northwest. I don't remember, like Portland or Seattle or something like that. It was many years ago. And his brother, Mike's older brother, was like Mike's hero. You know, he's like, man. And he kept telling me, he's like, yeah, because I was going to go to his graduation. He's like, yeah, I can't wait for you to meet my brother. My brother's going to be there. He's flying down for my graduation. He's the best. I really want you to meet him, all this stuff. And then um, the day of the graduation, I get there, and I find Mike's parents, and then we're kind of like waiting for the graduation to start, and I'm talking to them, and they tell me, they say, uh, yeah, like, it's kind of a bummer, Mike's really disappointed, because his brother's flight got canceled, so he's not going to be able to make it. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a bummer, right? The graduation starts, and then as the graduation is happening... This young man walks up, like almost runs up, and hugs Mike's family. And then I'm watching, and I realize, just from context clues, I think that's the brother. What the heck? I thought it was Mrs. Flight, he's like way up there, hours away, you know, Seattle or Portland, wherever. Like, what, what in the world? Long story short, Mike graduates, all the family, all this youth group kids, we're all taking pictures, hanging out. Long story short... He missed his flight, so then he got in his car, and he drove 14 hours to get to the graduation. And then Mike and his older, Mike's introducing me. He's my brother. He's the guy I'm talking about. It's so awesome. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. And he says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he says to his younger brother, he's like, yeah, I missed the flight and stuff. Like, I kept my word. I kept my word. I told you I was going to be here, and I'm here. Like, I cannot tell you what's ahead in your life. I don't know what tomorrow looks like for you. I don't know if that job situation is going to get worked out. I don't know if that relational um, pain is going to get resolved. I don't know if your marriage is going to get fixed or if your kids are going to grow to be the sorts of kids you long for them to be. I don't know if you're going to achieve all of your hopes and dreams. I don't know if the Niners are going to win today or lose. I don't know. None of us know. What I do know is this. God has spoken. And every word he speaks, he will stay true to his word. And that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. So let's stand and sing together.